You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The leak of the explosive draft of a Supreme Court opinion striking down the landmark ruling of Roe v. Wade sent shockwaves across the country on Monday night, igniting protests at the court within hours and across the nation since then. Vice President Kamala Harris denounced the decision to take away the constitutional right of women to abortion established for nearly half a century. Tell a woman what she can do and cannot do with her own body. How dare they? How dare they try to stop her from determining her own future? How dare they? While abortion rights advocates are planning how to fight back against the decision, which has been called the most damaging setback to the rights of women in our history, and politicians are considering how it will affect the midterms, where control of the narrowly divided House and Senate are up for grabs, legal experts are speculating how the unprecedented leak at a court normally shrouded in secrecy will further decimate trust among the justices. Joining me is Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. There have been leaks before in the modern history of the Supreme Court. Leaks about internal deliberations, even leaks of the results of Roe hours before it was issued. But nothing like this, a leak of a draft months before the ruling will be issued. What does this say about this court at this time? Well, I mean, I think the leak is only sort of part of the story compared to what the leak actually portends. But June, I think it says something pretty dramatic about whoever the leaker is their perception of the court's role and about the politicization of the court. I mean, whether the leak came from the court's left side or right side, either way, 
it's a pretty stunning development to have a draft majority opinion like this out in public, presumably to either galvanize public opposition or to lock in votes. And so I think to me, what is so telling about the leak is that we've come to a point in the court's history where it could even happen at all and where we could get to a place where a decision this monumental and this momentous is being leaked out for one reason or another in ways that are completely and unassailably political. Do you think that this is rattling the justices? Well, I mean, I can't speak to sort of how they're reacting other than to note that we know, for example, Justice Alito was supposed to speak on Friday at the Fifth Circuit Judicial Conference, that he's canceled that appearance only since the leak happened. You know, we have this remarkable statement from the court that came out on Tuesday, including the statement from Chief Justice Roberts himself. So I don't doubt that the leak has rattled at least some within the court. But again, I also think it's worth keeping things in perspective. I mean, the leak is only part of the story here. Part of why it's such a big deal is because what's in the leak. You know, if what had leaked out, June, were a draft majority opinion of a bankruptcy case, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. So true. The chief justice said in that statement he issued, the work of the court will not be affected in any way. Is that too optimistic? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think it's what he has to say, but I think everyone. The chief justice, first of all, knows exactly how untrue that is. You know, I think it's impossible to imagine this having no impact either in how the court resolves this case specifically, Dobbs, or in the court's business going forward. I mean, I think we are certain to, if not publicly see, at least come to be aware of changes behind the scenes and how the court handles draft distribution in whether the court tries to actually formalize some kind of code of secrecy and whether the court tries to actually create some kind of formal investigative mechanisms. So I think things are going to be irrevocably changed by this leak. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think remains to be seen. The marshal of the Supreme Court is investigating the leak. I just wonder whether the leaker will be found. Chief Justice Warren Burger threatened to call the FBI to administer <laughs> lie detector tests with the leak of Roe. Will it be really difficult to find out, perhaps impossible to find out who leaked? I think it depends. You know, if it was a current law clerk and if they weren't very clever about covering their tracks, it might actually be pretty easy to figure it out. But if it was either someone who's not currently in the building or if it was someone who worked really hard to obscure their identity, I think it gets much harder. And so everyone has their own pet theory about who the leaker is. I think it's also possible that we, the public, will never find out, even if the Supreme Court does. Because imagine a scenario where it turns out that the leaker is, you know, one of the justices or someone very close to one of the justices and not a law clerk. You know, I could see reasons why if I'm John Roberts, I don't want that becoming public. So I think we will probably hear something about the leak investigation, but whether we'll ever find out publicly who leaked the opinion and why, I think remains to be seen. I mean, even some of the most famous leaks in Supreme Court history, I think, have never been publicly identified, including the leak of the result in Roe. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is one of the Republicans calling for the Justice Department to investigate and prosecute the leaker. But what would they be prosecuted for? Uh, wishful thinking. Uh, <laughs> leaking, as June, you and I have discussed before, is not by itself a crime. In the national security space, there are criminal statutes that are specifically about leaking classified information. Whatever else you might say about the draft opinion in Dobbs, it wasn't classified, right? There are statutes that would make it a crime if the leaker used various mechanisms to obtain the draft. So if, for example, someone on the outside hacked into the court's computer system and obtained the draft that way, that might be a crime. But, you know, if I just happen to hand a confidential government 
document to a reporter, by itself, I am not committing a crime. And maybe there are folks who wish that that weren't true, but that's the law's stance. Let's talk about the opinion itself. And a line that's been quoted a lot is that Alito said, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Critique his reasoning in the draft. Well, I mean, I think the draft is, <laughs> it is top to bottom an exercise in motivated reasoning. I mean, Roe, you know, whatever else might be said about it, Justice Blackman did try very hard to explain exactly what he was doing. He tried very hard to explain the baseline right to privacy that we got from Griswold and that the draft opinion in Dobbs does not purport to repudiate. How what complicates the matter when you get in a, uh, an abortion case is that you have countervailing interests. You have the interest of the, the pregnant woman, but you also have the state's interest in protecting what Justice Blackman calls potential life. And so, you know, I think what's frustrating about the draft opinion, June, is that it really doesn't take Roe seriously. It just sort of accepts as a default proposition Roe's wrongness. And then I think goes into even more detail about the difficulties. Anytime the Supreme Court recognizes rights that Justice Alito says are not deeply rooted in our historical tradition. But of course, that would call into question a whole lot of stuff beyond Roe. So, you know, I guess what is striking about the draft opinion is that it's not an effort really to persuade anyone who wasn't already persuaded that Roe is wrong. And it's not really even an effort to convince the reader that Roe is wrong on its own terms. Does Alito just throw precedent out the window as he's done before in, for example, 2018, when he threw out a 30-year-old precedent in saying that government employees have a constitutional right not to pay union fees? No, I mean, I think Janice is a great comparison, June, because, yes, I mean, I think, you know, here we're seeing just how little regard and respect, right, that Justice Alito seems to have for stare decisis for the principle that all things being equal, right, the court should follow its precedent. You know, Alito's draft opinion does try to offer at least some arguments for why Roe and Casey shouldn't be followed as a matter of stare decisis. What's ironic about those arguments is that those were the very arguments that the joint opinion in Casey by Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter had relied upon. Um, and so he basically has to say, well, they were either they were wrong in 1992 or things have changed dramatically in the last 30 years. And I'm not sure either of those are, are true. So you know, part of why I think that's important, again, I think folks who want to be persuaded will be persuaded. But part of why that's important is because if this is the sort of casual and cavalier attitude that Justice Alito and whoever else signs this opinion is going to have towards stare decisis, why shouldn't we be worried about other rights? Why shouldn't we be worried about Griswold and contraception or about Lawrence versus Texas and same-sex sodomy or even Obergefell and same-sex marriage? I mean, the question is, you know, when the draft opinion says this is just about abortion, but it, it takes an approach to stare decisis that calls into question all prior decisions recognizing unenumerated constitutional rights, there's a pretty jarring contrast there. Is the reasoning so wrong or is the language so extreme that he may lose some of the five justices? You know, we'll find out. I mean, I, I guess, you know, one theory that I think is not implausible for why this opinion leaked out is that, you know, perhaps there was a separate opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts, who, according to the Politico story accompanying the leak, did not vote to overrule Rowan Casey at conference. Perhaps there was a separate opinion that, you know, was sufficiently compelling and or critical that someone was worried that at least one of the justices who had voted to overrule Rowan Casey at conference might be softening and might be wobbling. And so I've, I've always thought that one of the better theories here is that the leak was designed to actually lock in the five votes to overrule Rowan Casey, since now it would be very obvious to everyone if when the final decision comes down, this is not where the court ends up. 
that someone flip-flops. So we don't know if that's what's happening. We won't know perhaps even when the final decision comes down, if that's what happened. But it seems like at least a possibility. So is there a chance at least that Roe may not be reversed in the end? I mean, never say never, June, right? You know, Roe and Casey are themselves a good lesson here. I mean, the original vote at the conference in Casey, when the case was argued during the October 1991 term, was to overrule Roe. And we know what happened. We know the court didn't. So, you know, I think it's possible that what we get when the court hands down its final ruling doesn't look like this. The problem is that because of the leak, and this is why I'm skeptical that the leak came from the dissenters, because of the leak, I think that makes it a lot harder for justices who might have been pushing Alito to moderate the opinion or justices who might have been turned off by the opinion to not now just line up behind it. What's startling to me is that it's been less than two years since Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, and they're ready to overturn Roe. So am I just being naive that this is awfully fast? I mean, we've talked before about how the chief justice likes to do change in moderation. This is just, you know, wholesale reversal. Well, I mean, you know, June, I think this has been one of the themes that folks have been trying to point out since Justice Barrett replaced Justice Ginsburg. Like, yes, when Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy in 2018, that created a very solid five to four majority. But with the chief justice as basically the speed break, and with the chief justice, you know, and his preference for moderate, I wouldn't say moderation, but for sort of incrementalism, I think that's the right word, right, that that would be what decided how fast the court moved. Well, it's been clear now, right, for the better part of a year and a half, that it's no longer up to the chief. And we've seen sort of smaller and less significant examples of the court moving much faster than the chief might be inclined. You know, we've talked before, June, about some of these shadow docket rulings where the chief has joined the three liberals in dissent because he thinks that the court is moving too quickly by, you know, changing the law through unsigned, unexplained orders. So, you know, I think if this is where this ends up, you know, with a five to four or five to one to three ruling getting rid of Rowan Casey, that really is the denouement of a pattern that I think has been building since the day Justice Barrett joined the court. And it's just further proof of how this really is no longer the Roberts court. How will that affect the legitimacy of the court in you know, the eyes of the public? I mean, I think we're going to see what we've already been seeing, which is just further polarization and I think a further widening of the divide between those Americans who view the court as legitimate, if for no other reason than because they like what the court is doing, and those who view the court as illegitimate, whether because they don't like what the court is doing or because they think the court is doing it inappropriately. And I guess one of the things that leaves me you know, deeply worried about the court as an institution is that I would think it would be in the court's interest to care about that latter group, that it would be in the court's interest to actually want to have at least some semblance of legitimacy, even among those not inclined to agree with the results of its decisions. I mean, this was the theme of Justice Barrett's speech at the Ronald Reagan Library last month when she said, you know, don't just call us hacks, read our opinions. See for yourself that there are principles in them. You may not agree with the principles, but at least you'll see that there are principles. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I really lose sleep over is the increasing appearance, if not reality, that there's a chunk of justices, perhaps even the majority of justices, for whom how the court is perceived by those on the political left is increasingly less relevant. And I think that that's a very dangerous road to go down.
Alito attempts to distinguish abortion from other rights grounded in the constitutional right to privacy. But does his reasoning jeopardize other protections that are not, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition? Yeah, I think this is the problem. Yes, Alito says I'm only talking about abortion. But the grounds that he deploys for justifying the overruling of Rowan Casey are grounds that are not limited to abortion. And this notion that, you know, rights have to be deeply rooted in our history and tradition to be recognized by the Supreme Court would call into question a whole lot of things that Alito says he's not calling into question. Things like bans on interracial marriage, bans on same-sex marriage, bans on homosexual sodomy. I mean, there's a lot in June here that if you take the reasoning seriously as opposed to the rhetoric, could be vulnerable. Now, that doesn't mean that like overnight, you know, the Supreme Court's going to start overruling those cases too. You'd have to have first states that tried to scale back these protections, that tried to sort of restore bans on certain kinds of intimate conduct or gay marriage. But, you know, June, I live in Texas. Um, it's not hard to imagine elected officials in states like mine that are going to be pretty aggressive. I mean, just the other day, Governor Abbott, right, Texas's governor, talked about trying to push the Supreme Court to revisit a 1982 decision, recognizing the right of the children of undocumented immigrants to go to public school. So it's really hard to take seriously the protestations in the draft opinion and in by, by some who are defending it, that this is only going to be about abortion. Once you've crossed the Rubicon, once you've shown that you're willing to overrule cases like Roe and Casey, simply because you don't believe those rights are deeply rooted in our country's history, I don't know what the stopping point is other June than politics. And, you know, if the stopping point is politics, if the stopping point is that overruling those other decisions would be deeply unpopular, I mean, one, those politics could always change. But two, what does that say about the principle here? If the only reason why Roe and Casey are not safe as those other cases are is because of political support, then that suggests that this is politics all the way down and not constitutional law. What's the next battle line? Some are saying that medication abortion would be the next battleground. Well, I mean, I think we're going to see multiple battlegrounds at once. Medication abortion is going to be one front in the war. I think we're going to see states try to make it unlawful for their residents to travel out of state to obtain abortion so that we're going to have a fight over whether states can limit their own residents from leaving the state to go to states that will still have abortions after this decision. And so on the abortion front, I think that's where the fight will be joined. But I also think, as you know, we talked about with regard to Governor Abbott, we're going to see efforts by other, especially red states, to push the envelope and to see what other rights the court is willing to reconsider, because the one undeniable thing about a ruling like the draft opinion, if that becomes the law of the land, is it's basically an invitation to court and to state to be cynical and to be political and to push the court to actually revisit these rights one at a time in a way that would not have been true without this kind of decision. You know, states banning people from leaving the state to get an abortion, it seems to me like that's just unworkable and even for conservatives, hard to defend. I mean, maybe, maybe not. You know, I think it depends on, you know, what, how you set up the law. Um, depends on, you know, sort of if you impose, as Texas has, mandatory reporting requirements on medical providers when it comes to, you know, individuals who are pregnant and then lose their pregnancy. Um, you know, I, I think it's ugly, and I think it would incentivize a very sort of dangerous and surveillance-oriented regime. But, you know, June, I, I don't know if folks appreciate how close to that we already are here in Texas. Um, and, you know, one response might be, oh, well, the Supreme Court would never countenance that. And I think this is the, you know, at, at, in, in the final analysis, this is the central problem with the draft opinion in Dobbs, which is arguments that the Supreme Court would, quote, never countenance 
you know, insert crazy thing here, really do go out the window once you have an opinion like this on the books. Thanks so much for your insight, Steve. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. At their confirmation hearings, the five conservative justices who've signed on to a draft decision overturning Roe v. Wade acknowledged that Roe was a precedent of the Supreme Court. It is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Been reaffirmed many times. Casey is precedent on precedent. It has been reaffirmed. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court, worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. And scholars across the spectrum say that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. I believe the Constitution protects the right to privacy. Roe versus Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It was decided in 1973, so it's been on the books for a long time. The last justice testifying in that clip was Samuel Alito, who authored the draft opinion reversing Roe v. Wade. My guest is Catherine Frankie, a professor at Columbia Law School and the director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law. If the court does, in fact, reverse Roe v. Wade, how big of a setback would that be to the rights of women in this country? Well, this draft opinion threatens to turn back constitutional law for three generations back in time to set us back to really the early part of the 20th century. The breadth of the opinion 
reaches not just the right to abortion and where it might be protected under the Constitution, but a wide range of other rights. So they're planting the seeds for the next cases coming down the road. And in this sense, I think what this opinion threatens to do is to write women and pregnant people in particular out of the Constitution entirely. Let's talk about the reasoning in his draft opinion. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion. Give me your opinion of the way he reasoned out this opinion. Well, Justice Alito articulates a view that is held by several other members of the court, which is that if the right is not specifically listed or mentioned in the Constitution, then it doesn't exist. And we saw Justice Gorsuch use very similar language in one of the COVID religious liberty cases in 2020. And here the idea is that, well, the word abortion doesn't appear in the Constitution, but actually neither does the word sex or sex equality. But we don't also see the words internet or electricity. I mean, there are all sorts of things that are legally relevant that have been invented or at least become socially important since the drafting of the Constitution. So to say that there's no right to privacy, no right to reproductive liberty in the Constitution because those words don't exist is a foolish way, a kind of immature and simple way to interpret a constitution in a modern society. There's been a lot of criticism of Roe, even by liberals like the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Why such criticism? Well, there have been a number of decisions from the Supreme Court since its founding that have not landed as successfully as perhaps some other decisions. So, for instance, the Brown versus Board of Education decision in the 1950s also was responded to with enormous resistance and backlash from the South. And what we see with these kinds of decisions where significant changes in the society are being taken up by the Supreme Court is that there's usually a conversation between the court and the people that goes back and forth of we'll take one step, you take one step, we'll take one step, you take one step. And with Roe, the resistance to abortion rights was unrelenting, notwithstanding the fact that abortion rights always polled as being something that people in the United States fully and robustly supported. But the megaphone of the Christian radical right drowned out what has been really a consensus among most people in this country, that the Supreme Court's decision in Roe was correct. And so it's not unusual for the court to take up issues that are, that are still somewhat contested in society. But in fact, that is the job of the Supreme Court is to say even rights which aren't popular may actually have a ground in the Constitution. And I think the right to racial equality is exactly the right analogy. Those rights also weren't popular at the time in some parts of American society. But little by little, they gained traction, and we now take them as given. One of the focuses of Alito's opinion is that there's no mention of abortion in the Constitution. Tell us about the implications of that kind of reasoning. Well, Justice Alito articulates a view that is held by several other members of the court, which is that if the right is not specifically listed or mentioned in the Constitution, then it doesn't exist. And we saw Justice Gorsuch use very similar language in one of the COVID religious liberty cases in 2020. 
And here the idea is that, well, the word abortion doesn't appear in the Constitution, but actually neither does the word sex or sex equality. But we don't also see the words internet or electricity. I mean, there are all sorts of things that are legally relevant that have been invented or at least become socially important since the drafting of the Constitution. So to say that there's no right to privacy, no right to reproductive liberty in the Constitution because those words don't exist is a foolish way, a kind of immature and simple way to interpret a Constitution in a modern society. Do you really think the ultimate aim is to erase women from the Constitution? For some members of the Supreme Court, yes, or at least some version of what women's rights are. And by saying that we instead should look to 50 individual state legislatures for what kinds of fundamental rights people enjoy, what kinds of protections they have based on their sex or gender in this society, is to say that those are second-class rights. Certain rights, like religious liberty, for instance, and I think we'll see in the court's gun rights cases that are coming down later this term, those rights deserve the robust protection of the federal constitution. But other rights, like women's rights or rights to abortion, well, those are actually less fundamental, and you can enjoy that right if you are lucky enough to live in a state where your state legislature respects a right to reproductive rights. Do you think that other rights that are grounded in privacy might be also at risk here, talking about interracial marriage, gay marriage, contraception? Well, Justice Alito's draft decision says we're only deciding the abortion question now. We are not necessarily deciding these other hot-button issues like a right to contraception, like a right to marriage for same-sex couples, interracial marriage. But the way in which they kick the legs out from under Roe versus Wade makes any reasonable reader of constitutional law say that those other issues have no legs to stand on anymore. So I think it's predictable and foreseeable that this court will take those next steps, and certainly advocates will urge them to do so, to reverse the Obergefell decision securing rights to marriage for same-sex couples, and earlier cases that dealt with a right to contraception, and cases that found that bans on interracial marriage also violated privacy and other fundamental rights secured under the Constitution. Explain how he explains a way reversing precedent which this court seems a little more willing to do than other courts. Well, he's inventing a new test, that if there are certain prior decisions of the court that are really wrong, then a a later Supreme Court has the authority and indeed the duty, I think he would say, to overrule those decisions. And he uses the term egregiously wrongly decided. But we have no criteria for what it means to be really wrong. So he points to some of the race discrimination cases, which I think today most people would agree, um, the early cases in the 19th century that upheld separate but equal-based race discrimination, that those were egregiously wrong. But there's nothing in the Roe versus Wade decision that would put it on the same level of wrongness as Plessy versus Ferguson or some of the other early cases that Justice Alito also points to as examples of the court issuing decisions that were so badly decided in the first instance that they deserve to be overruled later. After listening to the oral arguments in this case, was it sort of apparent that they were going to either affirm the Mississippi law 
or they were going to go further and overrule Roe v. Wade. So was this that much of a shock? Well, the Supreme Court watchers came down in a number of different places. Uh, I think most people felt that the court now had enough votes to at least radically limit Roe versus Wade. And Chief Justice Roberts, I think, still believes deeply in the integrity of the court and is worried about the reputation of the court as being just a political body that you can pack with political conservatives and they will willy-nilly overrule cases they don't agree with. He's very worried that that's how this kind of decision will be read by the public. But it seems he's lost control of the court. And the much more radical wing of the court, embodied most prominently by Justice Alito, who on the bench manifests a kind of anger and injudicious behavior in his questioning of people who are you know, honorably presenting questions and arguments to the court, that he has this opinion and is using such outrageous language in the opinion shows us that the kind of tempered judicial-like conduct and tone that we're used to from Chief Justice Roberts will no longer garner a majority of this court. And that's quite troubling. This is only a draft. Is it likely that at least the language will be tempered? And is there a chance that perhaps one of the justices will sort of go for a middle ground, as Chief Justice Roberts would like to see? I think it's quite difficult to know how the court will respond to this unauthorized leak of a draft opinion in one of the most awaited opinions in the court's history. We don't have really much evidence from the past to go on of what they will do. One possibility is that some of the other justices will be so concerned about the court's reputation that they will urge Justice Alito or another author to issue a more tempered opinion. But one could also See that what was the motivation for releasing this draft is to prepare the American people for the bomb that's about to be dropped by the U.S. Supreme Court, so that the outrage we're having today will have dissipated a little bit by June when they issue their final opinion. So I think it's kind of impossible at this point to know how this leak will affect what the ultimate decision, official decision is from this court. Democratic lawmakers say they want to codify Roe. With the political divide in our country, what are the chances that something like that could be successful? Zero. I think it's highly unlikely that we would be able to get a majority of senators to vote for a codification of Roe versus Wade, never mind a filibuster-proof 60 votes at this point, because there's some Democrats who are actually anti-abortion in the Senate. And perhaps even more importantly, if we're going to spend an enormous amount of capital in the Senate to try to get a filibuster-proof majority for some sort of codification of abortion rights, why fight for Roe versus Wade? It was a flawed decision from the beginning. And there is other legislation in Congress right now that would secure reproductive rights and justice in a much more robust way. The other option is to finally ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which is only a couple votes away from final ratification in the Senate, where they would lift the deadline that had been imposed by the Congress back in the 1970s. So adding explicit sex equality protections to the Constitution for the first time would have the effect of undermining the argument that Justice Alito relies on so heavily, which is that sex equality doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution. The group I work with here at Columbia, the Equal Rights Amendment Project, has issued talking points on how the ERA may actually come save the day when it comes to reproductive rights. 
what do you think the effect will be of this decision on the ground in states? Well, I think there's probably 50 different answers to that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York City, and we'll be having a, a major rally downtown. It's kind of a sad commentary on uh, the left and on the pro-choice left in this country that it takes the entire house to be on fire before we show up in the streets to defend reproductive rights. The right wing, the opponents of abortion rights and the opponents of Roe have been doing this uh, every day, organizing since 1973 when the Supreme Court issued this opinion. And it may be that um, that organizing is happening too late to defend Roe. But I certainly would imagine we'll see bills in state legislatures across the country to try to codify Roe. We've already done that in New York State. California has as well. But there are numerous bills that have been passed or are pending in many state legislatures across the country that would criminalize abortion immediately upon Roe being uh, overruled. And that's much more where the trend is going in many states in this country than the codification of Roe, unfortunately. Finally, Justice Sotomayor said during the oral argument, Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I I, I don't see how it is possible. What kind of impact do you think this has on the court as an institution and on the public's perception and belief in the court? This will have a profound and lasting destructive effect on the reputation of the Supreme Court. The magic of having a Supreme Court is that their opinions, their decisions are abided by by the American people as a matter of voluntary consent. The Supreme Court doesn't have an army that can enforce their rules. They have to have the kind of legitimacy and authority that the American public respects because we live in a society governed by law, not just by politics. And for the court to issue this kind of radical decision so quickly after acquiring a majority that enables them legally to do so will have long-lasting destructive effects. And that stench that Justice Sotomayor referred to, certainly, for I think, for the rest of my lifetime, and it's a tragedy. It's an enormous attack and assault on the very idea of democracy, that we have both elected officials and judges who interpret the Constitution in an enduring and apolitical way. And the, uh, that last principle, I think, will be severely undermined um, by uh, this opinion, this draft opinion from Justice Alito, if it ends up being the actual law of the land. Thanks, Catherine. That's Professor Catherine Frankie of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple like as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.